If you're going to be a good coach, like you have to believe you're really good, right? Like you have to balance humility with confidence. You have to believe you're really good. And I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I believe I'm really good. And so even then I did, even when I was uncertain. So I also did have this kind of false sense of like, well, they've got to hear from me. Like I've got the answers. Like they've got to hear from me. And none of that matters if you're not building a connection with each one every day. And I think a lot of it was when I was young, man, like I'm going to put my stamp on this. This is, you know, what we're going to do. And wish I could go back and, and I've actually enjoyed it more. <laughs> What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. My guest this week is Chris Miltenberg. Chris is one of the top collegiate cross-country and track coaches in the United States. He's currently the director of cross-country and track and field at the University of North Carolina, where he took over last year after holding the same position at Stanford from 2012 until mid-2019. Prior to that, he was the head women's cross-country coach and associate head coach for track and field at Georgetown from 2007 to 2012. He got his start in coaching at Columbia, where he worked as an assistant from 2004 to 2007. Milt's resume is incredibly impressive. His women's cross-country team at Georgetown won the national title in 2011. His teams have earned 10 podium finishes in NCAA championship competition, not to mention numerous conference and regional titles over the past 16 years. He's had dozens of student-athletes earn All-America honors. Many have gone on to run professionally. His teams have been recognized for their success in the classroom. And Coach Milt has racked up more Coach of the Year awards than I can count. We recently had a conversation about coaching, the path he's followed, challenges he's faced, and who he's learned from along the way. We talked about why he left Stanford for Carolina, how he and his teams have been navigating the pandemic, and why he ultimately believes the events of this past year have helped him, his staff, and his athletes focus on what's really important. Milt also told me about how paranoia and insecurity fuel his work ethic, why that's gotten him into trouble sometimes, and what he does to keep himself in check, how he keeps himself sharp as a coach, and a lot more. This is a long one, folks, but it's a must-listen for any coach, leader, manager, parent, or athlete. Milt's message, his outlook, and energy had a big impact on me, and I think it will have a similar effect on you as well. Before we dive in, I want to say thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Look, I love this brand and all that it's about. Founded in Boston in 2014, Tracksmith is an independent running brand built on a deep love for the sport. They craft products, tell stories, and create experiences that aim to celebrate, support, and add to running's distinct culture. And this holiday season, Tracksmith is acknowledging that running is a gift and that this year, the miles meant more. As I reflect upon the storm of uncertainty and chaos that has proven overwhelming at times the past several months, Running has been the rock that's helped me weather it all. It's kept me grounded, and the miles have meant more than ever before, despite the fact that I didn't race for the first time in the 23 years that I've been involved in the sport. Tracksmith wants to say thank you, Running, for being the simple act that has kept us sane in a turbulent year, and they're offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more through the end of the month. To learn more, check out tracksmith.com and use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. 
Gooder is a new sponsor for the show, and I am stoked about this partnership. Gooder sunglasses, well, they're just the best. I've been wearing them for the past few years, and not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. And did I mention they're the most affordable performance sunglasses on the planet? Most pairs are just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. There's also a nice range of styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of gooders, head over to www.gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout for free shipping on your first order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O and you'll get free shipping on your first pair of shades. Look good, run gooder. Okay, let's get right into this one with Coach Chris Miltonberg. Fill me in on what you're up to right now. In ordinary times, the NCAA cross-country championships would have been two weeks ago. And here we are, first week of December, coming off of Thanksgiving. What are things looking like for you and your teams right now? Uh, yeah, certainly a lot different than what a normal December would look like. Um, for us right now, you know, our, our cross country season finished at the ACC championships, uh, the end of October, we, in an attempt to model what an NCAA championship year would look like, trained right through Thanksgiving break. Um, our athletes went home, they took final exams before Thanksgiving, which is also completely out of the norm. Uh, and then now we have people back for the next few weeks, uh, to train. We're actually in a holding pattern right now, awaiting our COVID test results from, uh, yesterday to then hopefully start practicing the next day or two. Once we have those, uh, just for the people that are here for the next few weeks. So yeah, it's, it's definitely different, but you know, we have gotten to be here this fall, which we did not take for granted on any given day. It was actually incredible for our team to be here be in, a semblance of a season, but more importantly, just be at practice together every day. So yeah, we're, we're, we're back going right now. And uh, I said, it's as uncertain as things are outside. It's actually really exciting here because there is certainty of what we're going to do, you know, and that's get better every day and, and have our people here. So uh, I've always loved December. I've always missed a chance to get to, to reset and we're not, not a meet on the horizon and everyone's can reflect on cross, get back to training. And so that's what we're doing. It's just definitely different than it used to be. Let's rewind a little bit. What did things look like earlier this year? I mean, it was during the NCAA Indoor Championships when a lot of the restrictions came down. I mean, you were, you guys were essentially sent home from that meet because of COVID. Take me back to that period of time and what were some of the conversations that you were having with your athletes when there was still uncertainty, but everything had been paused. Yeah. And, and it, it all happened really quickly, you know, and, and so much of it in hindsight now seems obvious, but we didn't know the things that were coming at each phase of it. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, like you mentioned, the NCAA indoor championships got canceled the day before. Um, I was on my way there. I was on my connection uh, in Dallas, headed to Albuquerque. Um, our, our athletes had gone the day before with the rest of our staff. I stayed home for practice and was coming the next day. Uh, and I, I never made it. I turned around in, in Dallas and flew home and the rest of our staff got our guys 
out of Albuquerque as quickly as possible because uh, the ACC actually pulled us out of the national meet about an hour before the NCAA canceled it. So we were lucky that we got the jump on flights and our guys were back home by that night. And then, you know, again, this all sounds crazy now, but we didn't know then what we were really looking at. We thought we were looking at a week, two weeks. Um, nobody really knew that. So there was that first stretch where, okay, we're going to start, you know, we're going to regroup, we're going to get ready for outdoors. Okay, the NCAA outdoor got canceled. But then there was two weeks where the ACC wasn't certain they were going to cancel the season. So we talked about be ready for what's coming. And, and then that canceled, which again, now seems so obvious. But you didn't know that was coming at the time. There were so many steps to it. And, um, you know, we, we really just, with our team, we, we used it as, a, as an inflection point. And, you know, I, I had been here for six or seven months at that point. Like, I, I mm-hmm. you know, was still just getting to know our team. And we were starting to really lay some some foundation in our relationships and where we're going to go. And so it, it was hard. But I actually think we, we used it as a chance to get better, you know, and, and you know, so many people talk about oh, we had this taken from us. And, you know, I tried to really shift that narrative, not about what was taken from us, but like, what are we going to do? what are we going to do? And and we kept saying, Hey, through all the uncertainty, one thing that's not uncertain at all is like what we are going to do, which is take every opportunity we can to get better and every opportunity we can to be ready for whatever opportunities come in the future. And so that was what our spring looked like. And, and, um, you know, once it all was settled, okay, we're done. This isn't happening. Um, then we started really, okay, how do we use it to look for the future? And I said, for me, it's, um, it's, it's been a chance to, take a break and, and I say break the wrong word, but a step back and just really mm-hmm. like, okay, how do we learn and grow and get better right now? And, and we can, we can worry all day about what we're not doing. What can we do and go use it? How did you learn, grow and get better as a team these past eight, nine months? Yeah. You know, especially again with me, like these were guys I barely knew, you know, our men's and women's teams and, and is I've been coaching them since August. Right. And now this happens in March. So it's not a very long time in the big picture. Um, and so, you know, we we talked about the same things we would always talk about. Hey, we can't control what happens. We control how we respond. And, you know, so many people and I'd even find this in recruiting when I talk to recruits. Well, you know, there's uncertainty of if there's going to be meets, some kind of training. And no, wait, no way. You know, like that. And that was how we approached it with our team. It's like, guys, if, if somebody told you the meets, you know, might or might not happen. It shouldn't change what we do today. Like, let's go get better today. And we had a really young team, and our 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 build our build here is in its infancy at that point. So, it was an opportunity for us. It may have been the best thing that could have happened to us, as, as crazy as that sounds. Um, and no, so we, we that was my next question: Was did it end up being a blessing in disguise? And in as you described, the infancy of your tenure at UNC really set the tone for what you wanted the program to be about. Yeah, I, I really think we're going to look back in a couple of years and realize spring of, of 2020, fall of 2020 were crucial turning points for us. And and you saw it in all these little ways that there aren't results to show for yet, but you could just see things happening in our house of, of people deciding if they really want to do this. You know, that really drove home, you know, losing that outdoor season, it, uncertainty about the future. Hey, what do you want out of this? Do you really want to do it? And, and we all people double down on, hey, I really, this is making me realize I want this. And, and truthfully, some people realized they didn't. And that was okay too, you know? And so, yeah, I think we will look back and see this is actually 
when we took a big step forward, even though we didn't have results to show for it. And, you know, from a training perspective, man, you get on the, you get on the, the hamster wheel of the NCAA schedule and sometimes you never get off it. You know, I think we're going to see maybe in a couple of years, our NCAA level performances may go up at the, on the distance side, because we finally get people a block of time without the calendar dictating, Hey, next race, next race. And I think it's going to be a really interesting thing when we go, but I know from us in our house, I think it was actually a huge turning point. Looking ahead to 2021 with a lot of uncertainty still in the air, we know as of of right now, the NSA is planning to have a cross country championships. I believe it's in March, which is very atypical. It lands at around the same time. The indoor championships would happen. Then you roll into outdoors. Now it's going to be an Olympic year that you're out of the, as you call it, like the hamster wheel of the, of the NCAA schedule. How have you thought about training and just how you're structuring the year right now, given what you know at this time? Yeah, it will, and, and again, like you talk about chance to get better. I mean, this has been so good for me to to rethink my training because, again, you're, you're, the NCAA kind of puts you in a situation where there's – only so much room for creativity and variability. Like, and I, and I think we've done a good job of that over the years, but the schedule dictates a lot of it. And, um, this has been a blank canvas and it has been for me just really valuable. Like thinking about what do we do? Why have we done what we've done for several years? What are we going to do different? I mean, I, I've taken so many things out of this fall that I did differently that I'm going to use going forward that I probably wouldn't have done. Um, had not forced into this new situation. And, um, you know, but I also look at like, I view my job, you know, with our, with our college athletes and, and particularly a lot of the ones that I have that, and have had over the years that intend to run long after college, right, is long-term growth and development. So, you know, I, I, I've never, ever fully been training them for the race next month, right? It's always been about, this is a cumulative sum game. And so, that's where whether indoors is going to be unknown up and down, whether there's going to be cross country out, it does, it changes what we do from like a big picture perspective, but it, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. from a day to day perspective, but it doesn't change the philosophy of it, which is like steady, consistent growth and development. And so, um, again, I, I think this presents a huge opportunity for us to do that. And, um, and I just think you have to be adaptable. You know, you just, as an athlete, as a coach, like, you can't get married to the plan because it could go out the window in any moment right now. And you can be able to pivot and adapt and, and trusting yourself more than even just a, a hard set plan. What specifically did you do differently this past fall? Well, we were in a, a unique situation here because after about a week and a half, Carolina went completely online, uh, virtual, completely virtual classes, and the rest of the student body left campus other than the student athletes. So... I, I feel badly to say this for all the people that couldn't stay, but it was a phenomenal environment for our guys, our student athletes on campus, because we were basically at the place to ourselves. And we had this massive flexibility with their classes being entirely virtual. And, uh, you know, we, we shifted uh, just some of our things in our day-to-day schedule, even of when we were practicing in the morning, having more time, which I'm going to use going forward. But especially because I have such a young team, you know, we just emphasize consistency without getting caught in that trap of, well, we've got to do this intensity today because the race is in two weeks. Like, no, man, we're training for the next five years and let's go and do that every day. And uh, so in talks specifically, you know, honestly, we did a lot less intensity. 
and we just emphasize consistency and and let's get everybody adapted to to be in here because we had a lot of you know a lot of new people both freshmen and, and grad transfers and um and i mean i think we've had the best fall of training we've ever had a lot of division one athletes are results driven people was it hard for you during this period of time where there were no races no specific dates to shoot for and peak and be ready for to get them to really embrace that long-term vision that you are training, not for the next five weeks or the next five months, but the next five years, as you just described. Um, yes and no, because like you said, right, they're so, um, results driven that sometimes as a coach, when you're trying to get them to buy into the long-term vision, you need to give them short-term success along the way. Uh, and sometimes that can be hard to do when you're training with a, with a big picture mindset. And so this enabled us to really take a step back from the results and guys, let's make this about our process and how we do things every day. And, and again, my situation here was so unique because this thing was in its infancy. And so this might be a totally different conversation if if we're talking about, you know, teams I've had at Stanford when we were at our peak and, um, you know, this was a a really freshman heavy team and and young guys that were still learning me, uh, and our system. And so we talked every day about, Hey, what we're doing today is planting the seeds for a two-year plan and a five-year plan. And, and so I think it actually took the, the, uh, them, uh, the pressure off of them of being results oriented, like let's go plan for the future and get better. And, And I think you should live in that at all times, you know, always in a growth and development mindset as an athlete, constantly learning, growing, never, okay, now I'm at the end result. I got to produce this result. You know, it's like always growing and learning. So it got a chance to really instill that. Um, and that's what we talk about every day. And so, and we did get a few chances to race, you know, we had a three, three tri meets that were very small locally. And then we had an ACC champion. So we had just the right amount to get to compete, but also again, have this building block towards the future. What's it been like for you trying to recruit through a pandemic? Um, different. And, and to be honest, it's been so refreshing because it went back to what really, really matters. You know, I, I think recruiting over the last, you know, the last 20 years, but, but really even just the last five to seven years has, has shifted in a way that, that, worries me and and honestly kind of bums me out some days um because we've gotten away from i think in certain cases what's really important at the end of the day facilities all those things man none of that stuff's important i mean look it's important to a point but nothing matters more than the people you are going to be with when you get there and so recruiting in this landscape there were no official visits there was no company. It was just about, we're going to build a relationship. And, and that started for us all the way back in January prior to the pandemic. We knew who we wanted to talk to and get to know. And um, it, it, it's, I said, it's reinvigorated me because we just got back to the real stuff, you know, and not, well, I went on my visit here and they showed me, you know, this, this, this beautiful facility or the, or the, the you know, the nutrition station. It's like, look, all that stuff's kind of important, but it really isn't. Let's go back to the substance. So I said, I, I have actually, uh, you know, gotten re-excited re by it. Um, and and so for us, yeah, I think it's been great. And we, we got, you know, we love the people that we have coming. The other part I'd say, and I think I alluded to this earlier, 
I learned more about the recruits I wanted through how they responded to the pandemic situation and the challenges and the uncertainty than if I had watched them run outdoor track. Because the people that we were going to recruit, we already knew they were good. The question was, are they the right fit for us and our culture and who we want to be? And so when you have that conversation and you're on the phone and again, hey, so how's training going right now? Well, coach, you know, I'm not really motivated. There's no needs. Boom. Nope. Not our guy. Not our guy. You know? Mm -hmm. And and so to me, it's about character and who they are. And so you got a chance to learn more of that. And so long answer to your question, but I I say it's been for us. I I wouldn't mind staying this way um, because we got, and I hope it stays here. That let's go back to the real stuff that matters, not what's on social media, not what, uh, you know, I, somebody asked me recently, like, did you do virtual campus tours? Honestly, we didn't. Like, we just talked to people and told them who we are and where we're going and, and get to know us, get to know our guys. And do you want to be part of this? I think zooming out a bit, if if I can, even outside of recruiting, I think that's what the pandemic's done for a lot of people in their lives. It's helped them to really zero in on what's important, what really matters, so that when we do come out of this, hopefully those are the things that stick and we take with us moving forward so that we can be better versions of ourselves. I I hope so, man. I know for me, that has absolutely been the case, you know, on both a a personal and professional level. And and for me, those two uh, blend together. I'd say that's absolutely been the case. And, and so, and I think it has been for, for our athletes and it's, it's what we talk about all the time through this and why, again, why I think we came out of this better too. Staying on the topic of recruiting, you were at Stanford, which is one of the top programs in the country year in and year out from 2012 to 2019. As you mentioned earlier, you took over at UNC last August, moved across the country not in the same place as Stanford geographically or in terms of how it was performing in the NCAA. What's different recruiting at UNC versus when you were at Stanford? Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that are different and a lot of things that are the same. Um, you know, one of the things at uh, Stanford that, that was, I, I think, a, a challenge at times, and, and you have to really if I said this to other coaches who never worked at Stanford, I don't, I think they would, would scoff at me. And, and uh, I think I don't really understand how good Stanford had it. And believe me, we had, we had it great from a recruiting perspective, but I think you had to be really careful at Stanford. Uh, I told my staff always, we have to recruit with discipline because there were always people that just wanted to go to Stanford, you know, and, and they would answer the question anyway. They thought you needed the answer to be to just get a chance to go to Stanford university. And I wanted people that wanted to run and wanted to be part of our program and wanted to be part of our culture and our family. And so, you know, it was this constant vetting of like, do you know, why do you want to come here? You know, and yes, let's not forget that Stanford is a great institution, but like there's other great institutions too. come here because you want to freaking run and you want to be part of what we're doing and, and you want to be part of a team. And, you know, Carolina, um, Obviously, you know, it's a phenomenal academic institution, but, but it's, it's this, this slight different place in the landscape because we haven't been very good, you know? And so the guys that we recruited and the women we recruited, they want to come run with us and they want to come be part of what we're doing and they could have gone anywhere. And, and I'd like to think, you know, I don't think they would have come to Carolina if we weren't here. I'm not saying that we were the sole reason they came, but I don't think they're coming if we're not here right now. And so it's exciting to start on that foot. 
you know, people who crystal clear, like, this is the challenge. This is what we're going to do. Are you up for the challenge? Part? And so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot of differences, a lot of similarities. You know, the similarity is that our philosophy hasn't changed. You know, people, again, that, you know, we are, uh, I hate to say it this way, but maybe more trying to scare people off than talk them into coming. And if we can keep telling them how challenging this is going to be and they still keep wanting to come, then we know we got the right deal. That hasn't changed in either place. In the past several months, we've seen a number of men's track programs, some cross-country programs as well, getting cut at other Division One schools. As someone who is a head coach at the Division One level, you're over the men's and women's programs. How do you feel when you see that happening at other schools, especially bigger ones like the University of Minnesota and Clemson? Yeah, it's really scary, man. It's it's really scary. Um, but I also, uh, you know, I, I I I think it's a moment that we have to, you know, college athletics, college track and field. We we've got to look in the mirror right now too. And and this is a chance. If college track and field, and particularly men's track and field, does not see this is a moment that we have to pivot and change who we are, man, we're we're going to miss the window here. And so. Yeah, I mean that is is really scary for our sport when you see that. Um, but but also, okay, what do we do then? You know, we can't all we can sign petitions and we get, but we're not changing what Clemson did. You know, because th- there's smart people there to have a plan. Why were we left out of their plan? You know, what what where is this thing going, and why does track not fit the plan at these places? And um, you know, I think we've. Uh, because look, there, there's going to be a huge correction in all of college athletics coming here. You know, I mean, they, and again, this gets me excited because we're going to go back to what's important because, you know, the money is draining out. And and I don't mean at the University of North Carolina, I mean everywhere. And and if you don't see that coming as a college coach, you're, you're, you're not paying attention. And so it's, it's, this, it's this recalibration of like, guys, what is this really about? You know, over the last six, seven, eight years, We've changed what it's about. You know, we've changed what the message is. When we were running, you know, there was no, um, we didn't have the the gear we have, the places we travel now, the amount of snacks we give, and, and all that stuff's great. But we've 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 gotten away from what it's really about. You know, and and that's about this is the single greatest place in the world to learn the lessons that are going to prepare you for anything else in life. And all the puffy coats and all the trips across the country are secondary to that. Well, guys, that stuff's gone now. It's gone everywhere now for the next several years. And so as track and field, we got to jump on that now and be like, man, we have gotten so bloated. We've gotten so bloated that our men's teams are too expensive to keep, you know, and obviously there's a big title nine part of this too. It's not just money, but money drives a lot of it, you know? And so how do we pivot and become more, uh, appealing to our administrators, more important on our campuses. And it, it's not by going to five-day meets that don't come back with a score. You know, it's not by, you know, the the things we've told ourselves. So, and I could go on and on about this because, I, I, yeah, I'm excited about the recalibration, but I think if we don't realize it's not, we need to have one, more pro, men's programs are going to get cut. What do you think drove that change in the past 10 to 20 years to get us to this point? Uh, oh man, Mario, you're, I, I can talk about this all day. You better be careful here. Um, cause this, this is what we think about a lot. And, and, and I think the message changed, you know, about what this was really about. Um, as we started to spend more on football, then we started to have this trickle down effect of, well, football gets it. We need to have it. And, and, and 
that there that you deserve these things. You deserve more gear. You deserve, you know, more snacks that that you're being slighted by not getting these things. Man, what we do for our student athletes now, and I don't mean in North Carolina, I mean everywhere, right? Compared to 20 years ago. It's incredible. But the message has gotten wrong. You know, somewhere along the line, the message got skewed towards it. That's what it was about, right? Instead of the thing that that we all had when we were running, it's like, man, we had, you know, part of a great team with a great coach that challenged you and prepared you for life. It was never about, I mean, now, I mean, come on, man, we do photo shoots now. We do photo shoots now. Why are we doing that? You know, it's just, it's, it's reflective of, of, so then we just started spending and spending and spending. And you hear people say like, oh, that's recruiting. I call no way on that. Like, if you think that's recruiting, then you don't know how to recruit, you know, like we don't recruit on that stuff at all. And I never did, you know? And so, um, but so long answer to your question, I think that's where we got off course is we made it about all these things. And, um, and now we're, we're basically created a monster that we have to, that we have to fix. Yeah. Well, again, if we, if we zoom out and we look outside of the world of collegiate cross country and track and field, we see a lot of that happening in society. It's this showing off, it's show me something. And I think that is definitely permeated into, into collegiate sports, much like, you know, you just described. And I think as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, what the last eight or nine months have shown a lot of us, if we've been looking at it through the right lens, is what's really important in our lives. What do we want our our lives, our pursuits to to be about? And I, I mean, I just hope for the good of our, our society and hopefully for the health of collegiate cross country and track and field that we do get back to that as we come out of this period. Yeah, I, I think it's going to make coaching awesome again. And not that it wasn't, but it goes back to that thing that for me, you know, many years ago, why I wanted to do it, you know, and, and those connections, those relationships that once the money's drained out and the puffy coats are gone and we're not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm joking around, but like the, it's, it's, it's real though. Cause 19 year olds, that's what they're clinging to now. The, the photo shoots and the puffy, once it's all gone again, man, it's going to make it about who really wants to do this and let's go help people chase their goals, chase their dreams and go, you know, be part of something really special that then sets them up. That, that's what it's going to be about because all the other stuff's going to be gone. And yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> it gets me fired up, actually. Those shiny things are exciting in the moment, but they don't sustain as you've just described. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. You know, and, and then maybe I'm, I'm 40 years old. So it's, it's I think I'm, I'm, probably old enough that I see it differently, but maybe young enough that I can, I can see what's happening, how it happened, you know? And, um, and I think that's what we, we've, you know, my, my teens, you know, the culture we've built everywhere we've been, it's been about, let's make it about the real things. And, um, th those things don't matter. It's just like recruiting in the end. You know, if we lose recruits over shiny things, we're good. We're good. It wasn't the right place. You weren't the right one for us. Kid you want. Yeah. Not, and, and so we're good on that front. And similarly, you know, in our program, like if that's why you're here, Guys, this, this probably isn't, you're not going to get out of this what we want you to get out of this in the end. When did you decide that coaching was an avenue that you wanted to pursue? Oh, man, that, um, it was a circuitous path to some extent, but one I, I think I got on pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, I started coaching my first year in 2004 at Columbia, but go back to how it started. You know, when, when I was in college, um, probably, no, I said probably, certainly nobody has had a bigger impact on my life, uh, than Pat Henner, who, who was my college coach and, 
uh, you know, and then gave me my, my, the big opportunity to come back to Georgetown. Uh, you know, Pat is, he, he's my, my son's godfather. I mean, he's in my life to say, nobody's had a bigger mix. So when I was in college, you know, when I went to, when I went to Georgetown, um, I, I was in the business school and I was a, a double major in finance and marketing. And, and, you know, just like everybody at Georgetown, I thought I'd go to wall street, you know, and, and around the middle of, uh, you know, into my junior year, into my fourth year, I started to realize that man, I, I, I need to do something with my life where I'm making an impact, like where I'm, I, I'm making an impact and helping people. And, um, it, but it hadn't, really crystallizing my brain like that would be coaching and so i'm looking around the landscape and it's like okay you know who, who are the people that are, are are doing that and at the time two things had happened i've been hurt a bunch and worked with some really good doctors i also uh started dating my wife who uh you know my father-in-law now this is going back 20 plus years ago is is a doctor and, and you know, he just was he's such an impressive guy and, and so pretty quickly i was like man that's what i think i want to do and so my last two years in college while i was finishing my business degree I actually took all the pre pre-med undergrad requirements. Um, and so, yeah, so it's just like totally broad spectrum, you know? And then when we graduated, my fifth year was 2003. Um, all I wanted to do was keep running. And, and, you know, I wasn't at a level where anybody was giving me a contract or anything like that, but I didn't care. Like I just wanted to keep running and, and I really didn't think about anything past there. And, you know, my plan was in 2003, 2004 to keep running and, and, study for the MCAT. And, but truthfully, like pretty quickly, I realized that wasn't really where my heart was, you know, this idea of like going to medical school, studying for all that stuff. Like I, 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 you know, that I was passionate about helping people and making an impact. And then, so then there's this moment where it's like, okay, well, everything in my life, literally everything in my life, the most important lessons, the most important relationships, who I am, I got from the sport. You know, the sport has given me, and I say that to this day, it's giving me more every day and shaping who I am. And, and so the idea to go into coaching was a lot of like, okay, well, the sport has given me everything. And a big part of it was the impact Pat, you know, coach Henner, I actually never call him Pat to this day still, um, had on me and okay. So if, if I can do that, if I can go to work every day and, and maybe give to somebody what, you know, what, what the coaches I had, you know, especially Pat had given to me then the sport's just the vehicle, man. And so that, that happened, you know, say 2003, 2004 there. Um, and then I spent, uh, months in early 2004. Um, I'd gotten hurt. I'd, I'd been in San Diego, uh, training. I'd, I'd gotten hurt. I moved back to New York, um, to try to get healthy. And I had surgery and I literally, when I was recovering from surgery, I spent hours every day emailing and calling every coach in the country. And just saying, I will volunteer, I'll be a GA, any way to get my foot in the door. Almost nobody even responded to my emails. You know, a handful of responses, oh, you can come volunteer. Um, and so, but then it was in that window of time that that's really when I knew, like, that's what I wanted to do. And did you know you always wanted to coach at the collegiate level, or did you just see that as the most viable path? Uh, no, I think for me, it, it was, it was pretty clear off to that. It was the college level. Um, you know, I, I had a great, a great high school coach, but, uh, who again is, is, is part of my family still to this day. And, but, you know, I, I came from a high school where I, nobody was other than, you know, as my brothers followed me, like was into running at all. You know, like, I don't think any other guys on my high school team had broken five minutes the mile before I got there, you know? And so, I was into this thing, but I also saw that this high school team that I was on, I was always so jealous of guys like, you know, we'd see, you know, CBA from New Jersey and teams like that. Like, man, that's a team. Like, 
we, you know, I had a, a phenomenal coach and, and some of my best friends that were on the team, but we didn't have that, you know? So I viewed high school coaching and it's a completely unfair way to look at it. It was like, I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to coach people that were on fire. Like, and I don't mean the performance level. It was that we're dying to do this. Like want to find out how good they can be. And just in my experience that I saw in college. And, and again, for me, it was, you know, Pat, the impact he had on me that happened in college. So that's how I drew that connection pretty quickly. How did you land at Columbia? Um, so, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I'd been in, uh, you know, Mike Smith, who's, who's the head coach in Northern Arizona. Now, uh, when him and I, you know, we were roommates in college. And then when we graduated, when everybody else was talking about getting jobs, we just wanted to run. And, uh, so Mike and I moved to San Diego, uh, and we were going to train there and, and coach Henner was still advising us. And, um, while I was there, I met a guy named Tom Clues. Um, who had had it was older than us and been a good steeplechaser, and he had run at Columbia, and we ran together a bunch of San Diego. And um, it, when I went back to New York, and I was literally calling every coach in the country, and I was about to go be a volunteer assistant at LaSalle University in Philadelphia with uh, Charles Torpy was head coach, and he was one of the few guys who called me back, took my calls, would would listen to me, give me advice. He was actually awesome for me. Um, I was about to go volunteer there, and then Tom Clues told me, "Hey, I." I think um, Columbia has a grad assistant position opening. Um, if, if you want, contact Willie Wood right away. Um, and I'm from New York. You know, I'm, I grew up 30 minutes outside the city, so I was home. Um, and so I called Willie, and uh, in, I went into the city and met with him. And, uh, and so that happened like in July of 2004. They had a graduate assistant position open, and I, then I jumped on that right away. Had you had any plans to pursue a master's degree prior to that GA position opening up at Columbia? No, uh, not really. No. Um, one piece of advice a coach gave me was to get a master's degree because when you apply for a job, it will look important that you have more education than the kids you're coaching. And, and, and I know that sounds kind of crass, but it was, it was actually sound advice. It's like, hey, make sure you, you have every tool in your arsenal when you go and apply for that job to differentiate yourself. But no, the real reason I went to graduate school at Columbia is basically that was the pay, you know, like you got, I, I lived in New York city and the stipend for the year was $6,000. Right. And so, you know, that's kind of hard in New York city. Um, not going to get too far. Yeah. It didn't get very far. No. Uh, but you know, I, so, but the pay was, 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 was a master's degree. And so I was very not, excited about going to graduate school. Um, but it was part of it. So I, but then it actually ended up being a great experience. Um, I, I got my master's in exercise physiology from Columbia in my first year there. And I remember taking my first exam, uh, in that's this initial introduction exercise. And I like halfway through, I was like, man, I, I failed this test completely, you know? And, uh, I went up to the professor's office afterwards and I was just really honest with him. I said, hey, look, man, I've been recruiting like crazy. We're in the, it's in the middle of cross country right now. I, I didn't study for this at all. I really haven't been prepared. And uh, he was like, you know, you, you, you'll be fine. And um, he ended up being, you know, great with me. So I, I wound up getting my master's in exercise physiology, which again, now, you know, from what I studied undergrad to then what I studied in grad school, two completely pull ops ends of the yep. spectrum. Um, and I'm, you know, that looks really good on my, you know, if you say, oh, wow, this guy's an ex-master in exercise physiology from an Ivy League school. But it actually is helpful because it made me realize that's not what coaching is really about. Um, I have that in my back pocket and I know those things and those principles from it. And I really enjoy graduate school. Like, um, but uh, no, that was never my intention. And I said, I, there were times where if I was choosing between calling a recruit or studying grad school, I was calling recruits. 
Did you pursue that particular field of study because you thought you could apply it directly to coaching? Yeah, definitely. And and, because at that time, you know, you're you're trying to just learn everything you can. I still am. Um, And in that moment, it seemed the perfect fit. I mean, there aren't many programs out there like that. And so that Columbia had one. Um, Willie, the head coach, knew the director of the program really well connected me with him. He basically admitted me. I went and met with him and he admitted me on the spot. Um, I never really applied to the graduate program at Columbia. Um, and so it was a great fit. And I said, it was actually an awesome experience. Like I, I, I really enjoyed that part, but, um, I did think at the time, yeah, this is only going to help my coaching. And, and I'm sure I don't credit that enough because I do think about those principles in training, but that's all I do is just keep them in my back pocket. You know? What were some of your biggest takeaways from your time at Columbia? Oh man, it was it was so good for me because um, Willie Wood, who was the head coach at Columbia, who was was just absolutely phenomenal for me, took care of me, mentored me, taught me so much. He could not have been more different than Pat Henner from a training philosophy, from a, just their personalities, you know. And that was I, I'm so glad I did that. Like the worst thing that could happen to me is if, if, if coach Henner said, Hey, Milt, come back and work with me right off the bat. That would have been so bad for me. As much as I would have loved to have done that, it would have been more of what I already knew, you know? And so, um, just seeing somebody with a totally different attitude, like just the way he trained, the way he thought about things, he was fascinating because he had been a really good sprinter and he, and Willie always claimed that was what made him a great distance coach because he never coached autobiographically. He was always mm. just trying to learn. He said that, he, and that, that stuck at me. I'm like, he, and he wasn't afraid to, you know, at the time call Mark Wetmore, ask his advice, you know, Hey, what do you, and because he was like, man, I'm just learning. And he had total, uh, there was no ego to that. And I, that always stuck with me. It's like, if you want to pick up the phone, ask advice, learn. So I, that was a big thing I learned. I learned from Willie. Um, and also honestly just had a freaking work. And, uh, you know, I was there for three years and I mean, the rec- the way we recruited was, I mean, we would come back from practice. I would, you know, I said I was, I was, had no money. I'd go down and, and buy a pizza and come back to the office and I'd start being there by myself, start making calls to the East coast at six o'clock. And then you just worked your way West until you got to 11 o'clock. And then I'd walk home, you know, because every night and we, we recruited just, it, it really said, this is the most important thing. Never forget recruiting drives the engine. And, um, I mean, we worked, you know, we, the hours, and I say we, a lot of it was me, you know, um, uh, that's, uh, we were doing just, we had a great division of how we did things, but the recruiting piece, I mean, we just learned how to grind, you know, my bar of what working hard and recruiting was got set then and it's never come down. And I've met people throughout the profession who just like what you learn right off the bat, what your bar is, and it's really hard to raise it. You know, but if you start at a high, it, it'll stay there. So I think that's the biggest part. Like the, you said, the, the hours we worked were, especially in New York City, the logistics were challenging. Um, and so uh, it just set me on a, on a path like this is this is coaching. Don't forget how hard this is. And, and you got to want that and love it. Is that something that you have to instill or you've had to instill in your assistance over the years as you've moved up the ranks as a coach? Yeah. And I've been lucky. I, you know, I've had great assistants who are driven. Um, and so they pick up on that really quickly, you know, um, and, and I've, I've explained it, you know, like uh, Willie said something to me once. He said, you know, if you want to climb the ladder, if you want people to know who you are, 
like there's only one way at this point in your career, you're 23 years old, is make it so that when, you know, Ron Warhurst in Michigan calls a recruit and, and asks him, hey, where else are you visiting? And every one of them says Columbia. Make it to the point where he hands the phone, he's like, damn it, who is at Columbia calling these people? You know, he's like, and that's how you make people figure out who you are. And so, you know, that and that is 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 how you'll you'll progress in your in your career. You know, don't think that you're you, you like I, I, I didn't write any workouts when I was at Columbia. I was never in charge of a group. Willie was their coach. I had a great you know niches I filled, and but I learned how to recruit. I learned how to how to support his vision and be part of that. And um, yeah, I mean, I say that when anybody I've hired, you know, we talk about that before they come on board, like. You got to love this and be ready for what this is. This is, you know, especially early on in your career. And, and you know, because I remember when I was there, um, I would look around the landscape and realize there were a million guys like me. And especially my first year at Columbia, I was the, the men's graduate assistant. Marisa Powell was the women's graduate assistant. And Andy Powell was a volunteer, right? So, you know, the three of us are in New York City. Andy's a volunteer. Me and Marisa are each making $6,000. And Andy and I would, you know, we spent every day together and, and we would look around the landscape and we'd be like, my God, there's a million guys like us. How are we going to make it? Like every, you know, low level job that opens 30 young guys like, us, no, 130 young guys like us apply, you know, and how, and I, I think all we did was just work really freaking hard and never get off, like never, like never get off the ramp. Like so many people took the off ramp at some point. You know, of like, well, I don't know. I'm not getting jobs. I'm not making much money. You know, I want to get married. And like, we just never did. You know, we were like, man, we're doing this no matter what. And so it's funny. I think the three of us started there. And then Marisa used to joke, she's tease Andy and I like, you guys are crazy. You want to do this. Like, she's like, I just, you know, <laughs> like she'd be like, she, she wanted to go to graduate school at Columbia. And, you know, Andy and I would just be talking, coaching all the time. And, and she's like, you two are crazy, man. Like this, this is like, you, you can't, and now she, you know, obviously she's been really successful and stayed in coaching too. And, um, it's kind of funny. I think that's how it all, all started back then. You know, but I, again, I, I don't think we did anything magical. We just didn't quit. You know, we just kept grinding. I had no idea that you were all at Columbia at the same time and looking where you're all at right now with the Powell's at Washington and what you've done at Georgetown, then Stanford now, UNC, it's it's pretty wild to look back and realize you were all just low-level graduate or volunteer assistants who were grinding, and that's what it took to get where you are today. Yeah, it, it is kind of a funny thing, like, you know, especially when we were we were all, you know, Andy and Marisa went to Stanford too. So when I landed at Stanford and they were at Oregon and we see each other all the time and just talk about, man, remember those days on, you know, they lived in a tiny, tiny apartment on, on 90, 96th Street. You know, I lived on 125th Street in, in Harlem before living in Harlem was cool. And uh, and I mean, we just were grinding and working. And so um, it's, yeah, it's really cool to look back on that time and think like kind of where we've all gone since then. Like, but never forget, like, yeah, that's how it started. Where does your work ethic come from? Uh, probably paranoia. <laughs> uh, maybe, or, or if I'm being totally honest, it's like, uh, I don't know if paranoia is the right word. Probably an element of insecurity is the right word. Uh, I just don't know any other way, you know, like this is how I've done everything is how, what I grew up around, you know, um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was uh, 11 or 12, pretty, pretty, you know, messy divorce. And my, my, 
you know, we lived in this town on Long Island where, uh, where I grew up is, you know, phenomenal place to grow up. And, um, you know, my, uh, my dad drove a coffee truck to the Bronx every day for 30 something years. Right. But we lived in this town where like everybody else's dad rode the train to wall street every day, back and forth, you know? And, um, you know, my mom was a teacher and, uh, and, and said, so we were, we, we certainly, our lifestyle was, 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 we were comfortable. We weren't, you know, so I don't mean to sound like, that was bad, but like, then my parents got divorced, you know, and my mom freaking is the strongest person I, like, I know, you know, is, I'm the oldest of four boys, you know, for most of our time together, it was us and my mom and she was working and, 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 you know, doing everything. And it was so much harder than she probably even ever led on to us at that point in our life. But we, you know, you saw it, right. And you saw it. So I think it just got set in me somewhere. And again, man, this is not a great trait in me sometimes. Like sometimes this goes too far the other way. You know, even at 40, I got to know how to like, just be aware of when to let up, you know, and that's not something I'm particularly great at, at times, but hopefully getting a little bit better. How has that bitten you in the rear end in the past? Oh man. Uh, you know, you gotta, just be impatient with yourself, you know, and, and uh, like, especially in coaching, if this, you know, you've got to go and develop people at the rate they're ready to be developed, you know, and you got to build a program with patience over time. And, you know, I've, I've just, uh, sometimes I've, I've worked myself to a point where I'm not at my best self by the end, you know, but you never see that in yourself, right? You don't like my, my assistant at, at Stanford for the first five years, the guy named John Oliver is now the head cross country coach at Purdue one of the hardest working guys you will ever meet in your life. Right. And then one of the most sincere, genuine guys you'll ever meet in your life. And I mean, John would work so freaking hard that some days I'd be like, I'd kick him out of the office. I'd be like, John, dude, you're, you're, you're operating at 70% capacity right now, but you don't know it because you're working. You're so tired, you know, and I'd be like, go on a date, go do something. And then he yelled back and he's like, well, you're not leaving. And I'd be like, ah, good point. <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, but so we don't see it in ourselves sometimes we see it in other people. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, I think it's just that and, you know, you, the ability to um, to shut it off, like to be at home and actually be at home. Uh, I've had to work really hard at that over time. You know. How have you worked hard at that to shut it off? Um, yeah, I mean, it's an ongoing process. I definitely don't have that mastered yet. Uh, but, you know, I have four kids um, and, and, you know, my wife and I, you know, we, we've been on this this coaching journey together from the beginning. And, um, there's no way I'm sitting here if not for her and how we did this. And, and, uh, you know, my kids are getting old enough now that like, they know when you're not dialed in when you're there and I know that they know. Um, and so that really, that's so important to me again, you know, especially I grew up, like I said, without, you know, really with just my mom and not my dad around. And then, so like, I know how important those moments are, you know, 2017, and this is gonna be a long story. So cut me off at any moment, but, uh, you know, 2017 was my, my fifth year at Stanford and, uh, everybody who's on my staff at, at North Carolina, who most of us were at Stanford together, everybody who's on that staff, then we, we get together, man, it's like, oh man, 2017, that was the dark year. And, uh, 2017, I'd put, you know, everyone always said, Hey, when you've been somewhere five years, you know, then it's all your people. Right. And then you, you know, then, then you can judge, are you good or not? Like it, did it work, you know? And, uh, so we're into 2017, 2016, 2017 is my fifth year at Stanford. And, uh, you know, we had great cross country season. We were second at NCAAs and uh, probably the closest we came to beating what NAU went on to become. And 
and then it went bad, man. <laughs> you know, we we went to indoors and, uh, you know, well, coming off the NCAA cross-country meet, Sean McGordy had what looked like a career-ending injury, and Sean was my guy. I mean, I carry that on my back like, man, like I wasn't sleeping. Like when Sean was hurt, it was as if like I was hurt. And uh, and then we go to indoors, and then Glenn Fisher gets hurt. And then Stephen Fahey gets hurt. And we're going into outdoors, and we're decimated. And I mean, as a guy who was hurt a lot in college, that the injuries kill me more than anything. Kill me. Kill me. Like, I carry that more than the defeats nothing the injuries kill me and uh and so it was dark man and i was stressing myself out i was uh i would i would have this i noticed in the mornings you know i would get up i get up 5 five thirty every day and uh what's the first thing you do check your phone read your email start doing work then i go for a run come back my kids are up i take my kids to school but i'm taking my kids to school but i'm already thinking about those emails i read I'm probably already pissed off about something, you know, because I was in such a frayed state at that point in time, you know, because everything was going bad. And, and, um, and so I'm driving my kids to school, but I'm already thinking about what I'm going to deal with the second I drop them off. I'm not actually talking to them in the car. I'm talking to them, but I'm not there, you know, cause I'm already like, shoot, I got this email and, and, and I'm not, and then I get to work and I'm, I've already been going since five 30 in my brain. And so I was just exhausted, man. And, and I wasn't handling it very well. And, and to be honest with you, I was like, thinking this might not be for me, you know, and, and I was drinking a lot and that, more than I wanted to be. And, uh, and then my fourth, uh, my daughter, my youngest one was born. I have three girls and one boy. And, uh, so I was out practice for two or three days. And, um, and I don't mean to sound like this, like, Oh, you hear guys, like this aha moment when, when your kid is born, this was my fourth one. Like we'd been to that. We knew, <laughs> I knew what was coming, but, uh, yeah, I literally just took a couple of days off. I had to, and, uh, maybe a day off. And I came straight from the hospital on the day she went home to practice and we had a team meeting, our whole team. And I was like, kind of decided right then, like, man, I'm either going to leave and just go work on Wall Street or do something else, or I got to reshift the way I am doing this and get back to enjoying it again. So I changed my routines completely is my, where I was going with this. Um, you know, I now in the morning, you know, I, I learned this from uh, my neighbor at Stanford, this guy named Tim O'Toole, basketball coach, one of my very, very dear friends. Uh, get up every morning. I write in my journal, I read, uh, hopefully run, and then take my kids to school. And I do not check my phone until I have pulled out of the school parking lot and start then and start fresh and and just keep it in, you know, contained bursts. And you're so much better when you're doing that. So, sorry, that was a long story. But I mean, that's like a lot of the things that I just kind of learned when I was like, man, I'm either got to change how I'm doing this or I got to do something else because I'm not even having fun anymore. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people listening to this, whether they're a coach or not. It resonates with me. I've been in a very similar spot. I have a no email before nine rule that mm. I stick to every day. And it, I mean, that alone, amongst other things, was a game changer because I wasn't in a reactive mode from the moment that I woke up and my head wasn't somewhere else. I could actually take the time to settle into my day and think about what was important to me and what I needed to do and not just be reacting to you know some some email that came in or a message that came through that triggered some emotion in me and i think a lot of people have found themselves in a similar spot at some point yeah no it, it, i think that's our world now I, I, this is you know my i said i could talk about this all day because this is what i think about all the time in our world and then i think about you know the 18 to 22 year olds i work with this is all they've ever known 
you know, and mm-hmm. this email onslaught, the constant availability. I mean, the, oh man, I, if you can, if you can beat that, like, I think I have a good skill, you know, one of the things I think I've learned how to do well that is I can focus I, and I notice I can focus better than a lot of people, you know, and I, and, and I, I don't know how I got that, but like, man, nobody can do that anymore because you're constantly getting pulled in tr- triggers and you're reacting all the time. You can't be reacting. And I was, I said, man, at 17, you know, it got to that point where I didn't even want to check my phone because if I checked and I was checking my phone every 30 seconds, because we just, when sometimes when it rains, it pours, man. And we had a season where I'm literally all my best guys were hurt. And, our, and, and I said earlier that I carry that on my back more than anything. And so what would happen? I was worried about them getting hurt. And you know what happens when you think that way? They get hurt, right? And when you talk about getting hurt and, and that's in the air. And so I was like, I didn't even want to check my phone because I knew if I checked my phone, I was going to have a text from somebody. Uh, and because it just, it just kind of spiraled for a few weeks there. And, uh, you know, ironically, that's when Grant Fisher won the NCAA championship in the 5,000, but he was the only guy we had at nationals um, mm-hmm. that year. And uh, so, yeah, that, if you can control that as a coach, man, if you can control your focus, then you, you beat two-thirds of the competition right off the bat. You know, one of my assistant coaches, uh, Gabe Sanders, who is the, now the head coach at, at Boston University, was my sprints coach at Stanford when his uh, son was being born as his first one. And he was like, Mel, man, how do you do this? He's like, you have four kids. You're, you're, you're in charge of the whole thing. And I don't mean to say like I was a genius or great at it. I was like, Gabe, one simple solution. Man. I don't have social media. Like, I don't. Like, I watch the rest of you fools waste so much time on that. I don't have it. That's how I do this. It's not that hard. Just don't do it. Just don't get stuck in that stuff. You'll be fine. You know, it's interesting to hear you describe <laughs> this because I've been dealing with a lot of similar stuff recently, like came to a head for me earlier this year to the point where two and a half months ago now, September 21st, I remember the day almost as if it was like the day I, I quit drinking or something like that. That's when I quit social media um, because I was so consumed by it. And I realized that it was taking away from my ability to focus on what was important, my family, my work, um, my own running, because I was constantly just scrolling this feed. And I think a lot of people find themselves in a similar spot. I know that's the I know that's the the case because I heard from a lot of those people um, when I when I did it, uh, and they're like, "How's it? You know, how's it been for you? Like being off social media? I'm like, it's a breath of fresh air, um, and you don't realize it when you're in it because that becomes the norm, and we're constantly in this in this reactive state, and we can't focus because of it. Mm. Oh, you talk about like the day you quit drinking. It, it might be more addictive. You know, and, and I, it's funny because this summer, I, I think I told you this when you were offline. I just when I, I kind of got dialed into your podcast in the spring, in the summer, and I signed up for your newsletter and I, you wrote a newsletter about yeah. this, maybe the first one I got from you about the social media, um, you know, basically, you know, purge you'd gone on and, oh man, that, that, like, I was like, all right, I'm going to like this guy. I'm going to, I'm going to read these because this is like right where my mind goes. Cause, because, you know, working with 18 to 22 year olds, this is what you have to be thinking about. Because this is their world. This is what they know. And so, but it's not, it's not unique to them, but like, because truthfully guys our age are just as, you know, people our age are just as sucked into it, but it has such a power over them, you know? And um, yeah. And I never, I never went down that road, you know? And so I, I, I think that's where uh, I've done, if I did one thing right, maybe, and I'll say right, but 
well, we were we were born at the right time, kind of in some ways, because we didn't come up with a lot of this stuff. I didn't get my first cell phone until after college, and I moved out to the West Coast, and my dad needed a way to get in touch with me. But social media didn't even exist then. This is 2004. And, you know, it came into the picture around 2007, really started to explode in like 2012. So the kids that you're working with, they don't know anything different. Like this is what they've they've grown up with. And that's what's you know, that's what's scary to me. But like the the folks that I coach, I mean, they're in the 25 to 55 year old age group and I see it consuming them. And mm-hmm. these are people who didn't necessarily mm-hmm. grow up with it, but it takes hold of you much like a substance will. And it is very addictive. And I have a history of substance addiction in my family. So I've seen it firsthand. And I noticed that a lot of my behaviors were consistent with what I saw my dad doing, what I saw my uncles doing growing up. And I knew that I had to make a drastic change or I was going to end up in the same place, but just with a, a different addiction. Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, Mario, you're speaking to a lot of, of how my brain operates too. And then certainly the experiences I've had in my life too, very, very similar to what, what you're talking about. And like I said, that, that balance of like, having that personality that knows you can get hooked on things and then, and just, you know, you know fixated on things. And, uh, you know, the social media thing, man, it, it, it it's, it's funny. Cause I, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I've been coaching that long. It's my 17th year in college coaching, right. Which is, I started coaching in 03. It's not like I've been coaching since 1980, but it's wild that even in the 17 years I've been doing this, I can pinpoint a change. You know, I think by the time I coached in 2010, 2011, are totally a different set of parameters that you are working with now. And you can, you can trace it. So like, it wasn't even when social media came out. It was when social media went on the phone, right? And it was available mm-hmm. everywhere. And I watched the anxiety level change, you know, and, and you realize everybody is that feeling judged all the time, you know, and that constant, I mean, that is heavy to people that age, you know, who are still figuring themselves out. It's heavy, man. And that's, they're, they, they, they don't, they've never not been on there since they were, you know, in their early teen years. So I, I can, I can literally think about teams I coached in 2010 and 2015, they were different. And you're like, how can five years make sense? But I think it really did, you know? And so, um, and it's not changing, you know? So it's just, I think as a coach, just being aware of that's what they're bringing to the table, you know, that's what they're bringing to this conversation. Talk to me about how you and your staff now navigate those muddled waters that social media and being constantly connected is affecting your kids and their ability to not only perform on the track or on the cross country course, but in the classroom or just have more meaningful relationships in their lives. Yeah. So, you know, it, we talk about it all the time. And, and, you know, if any of my athletes listen to this, they're all laughing right now because they know that it's all I ever talk about. Right. And, and, um, I have really, really firm, hard cell phone policies of, um, when you enter the locker room to come to practice, everything stays in the locker room. You know, you can't come out to the track, yeah, to the track and have it in your backpack and then be checking it while you're stretching. No way. Because those moments, man, those moments after the workout while you're stretching and those are the moments with the team right there. That's it. You know, those I'm sure for you and I know for me, those are the memories you have, right? Mm-hmm. Like those are the moments. And if you have your phone, those moments get missed, right? And you can tell at first they're like kind of twitching, like, uh, is my phone's still in the locker room. I got to get my phone. Like, and then if you just do it a few times, you get used to it. So, and then you know, we define even in North Carolina, we defined our five core values and you know, we worked on this with our whole team and being present is on the list of our core values. Learn how to be where your feet are right now. 
And, and that's, you know, that's bigger than just the phone and social media. It's also about, you know, growth and development one day at a time. But we talk about it openly all the time. But then I think the other part, you have to understand that that's what is, is in so many ways on their mind, even when they're competing, right? I, I mean, it's foreign to guys our age because, you know, we didn't have that level of judgment. You know, when we ran, maybe by Monday, the results were on uh, trackandfieldnews.com, you know, but like, you know, you couldn't know in minutes and you definitely didn't know about the mid-level guys, you know, like, you'd know what the Arkansas guys ran, you know, on Monday. But, and, and so it's just, you, there is, it's apples and oranges, our experience and theirs. And so as a coach, you got to just never even try to compare to what our experience was 20 years ago, you know, is, but, but so they know that they feel all the time, like they're thinking, you know, about how this is going to be judged. I, I had somebody say to me years ago, like, well, I didn't really want this one to show up on my TFERS profile. You know, TFERS is where track all mm-hmm. your results and, like, man, wow. Like, that really hit me. Like, you thought of that? Like, you thought of that. And, but I think they all do, you know? And so you got to know that you're not going to change it, but you got to talk about it. It's like, guys, we got to learn how to, you know, it's like the greatest thing I want for all my athletes is like, you know, be empowered to just be the best you you can be and own that. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that you and many other coaches that I've talked to and parents are are doing that because it's so important, especially for these kids. I mean, as an adult who didn't grow up with this stuff, but certainly became trapped by it, I was in a similar place. I mean, I'd not be in front of my phone. I'd be out for a run or something like that. I'm thinking about the social media posts I put up an hour ago and how it's performing or what people are saying about it. I see it with athletes I coach now. They post all their workouts to Strava, but you know, if they have a slow run for whatever reason, they're embarrassed for it to show up in their feed. I mean, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's permeated our society and I'd argue not for the better in a lot of ways. So I think, you know, hearing these reminders, whether it's from you on this podcast or when you're at practice with your kids, it's hugely important. Yeah, and I think it's, 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 it's the key to like to health and well-being, you know? Like what we're all, you know, it's, it's the key to actually... Uh, you know, being present in your life and enjoying it. And just, but more importantly, like not worrying about judgment. You know, my, my oldest daughter is 10. And so she doesn't have a phone yet, but like, I mean, you know, Colleen and I talk about this all the time because we see it coming. You know, we see it coming, this culture of, of just that constant feeling like being judged and assessed all the time. And I, um, you know, my staff would joke, I, I joined Instagram in January last year. We were at Virginia Tech for a meet. And uh, was one of these things where, you know, no, no race until the, the evening on the first night. We're all in our hotel rooms. And so I'm literally in my room and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to join this thing because I, I, I also know this is where this generation is recruiting and coaching. And so I better know what's going on, you know, and I don't mean like, oh, what they're posting, but I got to understand this better, you know. And so I come down to the meet and, and all my staff's on their phone. Like, did you join Instagram? Because I like, you know, whatever you call it, I friended them all. You know, I don't think that's actually the term, but, you know. And uh, they're like, we thought somebody made that up. So I've been watching this thing for a while now, the last six, seven months. And especially with all these athletes during the pandemic, the spring semester, the ones that didn't have cross-country seasons, you know, they went to these different places to train at altitude or whatever they're doing. And it's it's all about their social media. That's it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I was watching how that was affecting recruiting, too. And Man, you say it bums me out, but I got to be aware of it, you know, because of the kids I coach. I need my own kids coming up too. Yeah, I think that awareness is huge. I mean, for me, a big reason 
or one of the big reasons why I ended up leaving the platforms. I felt like I was living a lot of my life on social media. And I think a lot, I know a lot of people find themselves in a similar place. It's about, Hey, here's where I am. Here's what I'm doing. Here's how fast I'm running, like all, all this sort of thing. And it's just like, nah, that's doing more harm than good. Mm. And, and they don't even know it's doing harm. That's the thing, you right. know, cause it's all they've ever that's known. The scary part. You know, they don't even know that feeling. I mean, I, I, I've, I see it myself, you know, like I've, I've posted a handful of times on Instagram, just strategic things. Like when we're signing recruits and and then I catch myself, I go back, how many, how many people liked it? Whatever. And I'm like, mm-hmm. man, I know my personality. I couldn't do it. Like I, I, I can't do it at 40, let alone at 20 when I was an athlete and, and, and thinking people were going to, I, I would have been dead in the water, honestly. Like, so I have respect and appreciation for how hard this is on these kids. Cause I don't even think at my age, I can do it. A little while ago, you mentioned that you have five core values for your team. Can you tell me a bit more about what those are? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a process that um, you know I, I I never did it at Stanford to the extent we did it this past year at North Carolina when we were trying. We like we did it. We would talk about this thing, but I don't. I, you know, the process we went through this past year at Carolina to really sit down and let's put pen to paper on these and what are they. And, 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 and knowing, Hey, year to year, this is a fluid document because change teams change, you know? And so, I mean, I'm sitting in my office right now and they're on my wall right here and, and they are, you know, one to be relentless two to be, be, be steady slash consistent. We couldn't come up with which way we'd like more. So three is to be selfless, four is to be positive and five is to be present, you know, and, and, and on our wall, they all have an explanation as to what, what they mean. Um, but you know, I, I think a team needs to really flesh who out, who they, who they want to be. And so what we do with our team and, and again, you know, I, we didn't get as many opportunities to do this as we would have liked last year, but we have, a, we have, we have wristbands that have these different, uh, core values on it, five different ones, different colors for each one. And so at the end of a meet, you know, uh, we'll get together our team meetings and our captains or our elite, look, we will recognize, okay, if, if, if this guy did an incredible job of being selfless in the 3000, you know, one of the captains will shout him out and, and, you know, you get a selfless wristband and that's a big deal on our team. Like if you, if you got recognized by your teammate and we never talk about, Oh, he ran this time. He jumped this mark. He threw this mark. Tell me the process. Tell me what he did that embodies who we are. Even if the result wasn't good, let's make sure that's what we're recognizing every day. How have you evolved most as a coach in the 15 years that you've been doing it? Oh man. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm uh, more patient probably is, is maybe one part of it. And, and when I say more patient, really more patient with myself, um, not, you know, making it about um, what I think we can do, but just, hey, this is where we are. Let's get better tomorrow. You've got you've to reach people where they are to help move them forward. Don't worry about where you think they can be, you know, like reach them where they are. And I think I, I had to learn that over time. You know, Stanford, I mean, you know, I, 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 when I got the head coaching job at Stanford, I was 32 years old. Um, I actually got the job on my 32nd birthday. Uh, you know, I was the youngest uh, d- director of an entire program in the Power Five. And the crazy part is eight years later, now nine years later, I still am the youngest one. I, I think Marisa Powell is older than me by a couple of weeks, you know, and, um, man, it, I, 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 you know, I, I could fill a book with things. I wish I could go back and tell that guy of like, relax, you're going to figure it out. Like you, you can do like, and, and so just, you know, being patient and, and knowing it just takes time. 
Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's hard to pick on any one thing. Um, it's just remembering to love the process every day and, and reaching people where they are. If you were having a conversation today with 32 year old coach Milt, what would you tell him? Yeah, I, I think exactly that, man. Like, you know, in, in, enjoy the process. Um, the results are going to happen and, and believe, you know, believe in yourself, man. Like when I, when I got that job, you know, especially think about guys our age, right? When we were running, I mean, Stanford was the gold standard, right? From Arkansas, then to Stanford, right? And so, you know, when I got that job, man, and I'm a, I mean, I'm, for in many ways, I'm a kid, you know? And, and I, I think the coaching part, you know, because of what the situation I've been in at Georgetown, I, I think I felt pretty confident in that part. Hey, you give me a group of, of, of 18 distant terms, I can do that, right? But what I really wanted to find out why I wanted to be a head coach so badly was like, can I scale it? Can I scale it? Like, can I now be a director of an entire program, lead a staff and build that too? And so you're trying to balance this role of like, you're basically a CEO and still a hands-on coach. And I wasn't going to give up the hands-on coaching part because that's what I love. And it's, 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 you know, it's part of what we do, but also like, man, I had a lot of things I had to lead. And, and so if I could go back then, it would just be like, you know, be patient with yourself. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. Take the people that you're responsible for and do the absolute best you can with them every day. And and you're going to make mistakes and the results aren't, and it's okay. Just the only thing that matters is, did you do the best you could by the people that, that trusted you? You know, and I was so worried about, you know, I, people think I shouldn't have this job. We got to get results. And people think I, I'm not ready to be here. And I was making it all about myself, you know, and, and, and not in a good way, like in an insecure way, you know? And so, um, and again, that's probably what came to a peak in 2017. And uh, then while we got, you know, we, we had continued to get a lot better after that. Um, so yeah, I think a lot, and, and just like, you know, empower your assistants too. But go back and talk to that guy. It's like, you can't coach everybody yourself all day, every day. When you became a head coach and a director of the entire program, was it hard for you to give up some of that control or some of those responsibilities to your assistants? Yeah, it was terrible. Terrible at it. Um, I think I've gotten a lot better, but I still have room for growth there for sure. Um, you know, at, at Georgetown, day to day, I, I was responsible for coaching 18 women, you know, from 800 meters up and I had no assistant coaches. It was me and them. And then I look back on that and it was, God, I have such great memories of that. I, you know, the only thing I wish is I could go back and like have savored it more while I was in it, you know, and realize how good of a day to day that was and how awesome that thing we had was. Um, but I really believed like, Hey, that's the, that's like, that's the recipe. Not that I have this magical recipe, but the recipe is the connection. It's that connection, man. Like, it's that, like, you know, I knew them, they knew me, we were dialed. And, and, but you also have to know, like when that thing, that roster goes to 80 plus people, your ability to do that gets a lot harder and you start to dilute it. But what I want on my staff, on my teams is I want every kid in our program to have a coach they invite to their wedding, you know, a coach they call when their first kid is born. But, you know, I have to accept for something that might not be me is how do I put each of my event coaches in a situation where they can do that, you know, and then I'm going to have a group that I'm doing that with you. And I want the whole team to know, man, Milt's always there. The door is always open, but he also, the best thing he did for us was he empowered these incredible assistant coaches, which I have, you know, on my staff and, and gave them the runway to do it. You know, and, and I, I wasn't good at that, especially with my distance teams, you know, and um, 
it, it, it hit me, you know, maybe year three at Stanford, like, okay, you know, I cannot fully do the men or women hundred percent myself, the distance side. And so I hired Elizabeth Malloy, uh, got married to Elizabeth DeBull, who I had coached at Georgetown. I'd coached her as a pro athlete. Um, and with the vision that she was going to come and, and, and learn and over time take over our women's program. And man, Liz is a phenomenal coach. Uh, but you know, I, I never did it right fully. Like I never fully did it right by the end where I entirely let go. And, and we got, you know, and, and she's a saint for dealing with me through that as we figured it out. Um, but I think we could have done it better even. And then I think here now at Carolina, you know, right now, you know, Dylan Sorensen on my staff, he's really the one day to day coaching our women. And as a result, our women's cross country has never been better coached in my, on my programs. I've never been a better head men's cross cross country coach or, you know, men's distance coach because I'm focusing on these guys and I've never been a better head coach than I think I'm being right now of like dealing with everything else because I'm really letting Dylan actually coach and do it. So long answer to your question. If I can go back, that'd be step one too. (laughs) Do you think that inability to let go of the reins stems from the insecurity and the paranoia that you mentioned earlier? Is that fueling a lot of this? Oh, absolutely, man. I, you know, I wish I could say it, it, it's a healthy thing. It, 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 it's, it's not, you know, I, I, but part of it is too, like, if you're going to be a good coach, like you have to believe you're really good, right? Like you have to balance humility with confidence. Like you have to believe you're really good. And, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I believe I'm really good. And so even then I did, even when I was uncertain. So I also did have this kind of false sense of like, well, they've got to hear from me. Like I've got the answers, like they've got to hear from me. And, um, none of that matters if you're not building a connection with each one every day. And, uh, so yeah, I know I think a lot of it was when I was young, man, like I'm going to put my stamp on this. This is, you know, what we're going to do. And, uh, I wish I could go back and, and I've actually enjoyed it more. <laughs> You've mentioned your wife, Colleen, a couple times in this conversation, Colleen Kelly, she was a heck of a runner at Georgetown. Obviously your job is very demanding. There's a lot of travel involved, long days at the office, recruiting calls, all that sort of thing. How crucial has she been to understanding the demands of your job? Oh man, I, I, I don't even know if I can put this into words, to be honest with you. I mean, we are, uh, I, I, we've been a team in this from the beginning. You, you have to understand, like my, Colleen, my wife, she, I mean, she, she is the toughest person I know. Uh, the most steady calm person i know like i mean if, if you're i'm sure you're getting the sense from this conversation like I, I i'm emotional i can be uh reactive at times things i'm working on being there she's the exact opposite like she's the ultimate steady hand at the wheel and uh and and so you know but, but also like with, with, with her she knew like we were clear on the vision for this you know like she like when we left georgetown you know colleen had risen to where she was the associate dean of admissions at georgetown um and, and, but, but the thing I, I like so admire about her is like, she knew what she wanted to do the same way I did, you know, like we knew we wanted our family to, to raise our family a certain way and that she wanted to be home, you know? And, and, and so, um, and you know, she's got a master's degree from Georgetown. I mean, she could do anything like she could literally do anything like and kick ass at it. And, and she does, she kicks ass at like this, this whole enterprise we're running together of our family and, our, you know, our, our coaching career and how it's integrated. And, um, so, and, and also like, she's the only one who will tell me like, man, you're being crazy. Like she is literally the only one, you know, like, I mean, when you're the head coach, nobody tells you that, 
you know, like no one puts you in your place, but oh, believe me at home, I, I, then I need that, man, you know? And so, um, we talk, like, you know, I, I try to balance, like, you know, I need her advice, but then I try to balance too sometimes when I'm home, right. you know, and it's like not to be talking about work, but then also she's like somebody whose advice I really want, you know? And so try to balance that all the time. But yeah, I mean, we, we've been on this whole, this whole journey together. There's no way. And, and even, you know, even like our athletes, you know, they know, I mean, I want my family around, you know, my kids are at the track all the time. I, I, and so, you know, even like, uh, knowing that, like, I, I think having Colleen around has helped me a lot with mm-hmm. my athletes getting to know her too. Right. And, 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 and seeing, man, he might actually be a decent person because this woman <laughs> puts up with him, you know, and like, she seems pretty awesome, you know, like, um, and, and, and so, yeah, I just think it's, 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 you know, I, I, I could talk about this all day too. I mean, we're, yes, and she's the toughest person I know, ste- steadiest person I know. Um, and it said, our house is madness, man. Four kids, we've moved. We've, you know, we, uh, when I, when I took the job at Stanford, uh, our oldest was two years old. And then my, my son, he was six weeks old. And when I took the job, it was practice started the next day. And I left and went to California. Colleen was still working. She stayed, sold our house, got the kids ready to move, everything. And I just went to California and started working. And, uh, and, and dude, that's, that's what we've done. We've been on a team like that through all these steps along the way. Does having the kids around your team help them to understand who it is that you're given a lot of your time and attention to and allow them to see the impact that you're having on their lives? For for my kids, yeah, I, I hope so. You know, I, I hope someday when they get older, they'll they'll have that 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 memory of being around. And honestly, I mean, you can't ask for better role models. You know, like I mean, think about my daughters. You know, like they're around like these badass you know women that we coach. That's all they know. You know, like 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 my oldest daughter Maggie. I mean, like Elise Cranny, Vanessa Frazier, like. That's like big sisters here. You know, my son, he worships Grant Fisher and Sean McGordon, you know, and like those guys are over our house, you know. And so my hope is that, yeah, they see how passionate I am about what I do and and how we're making a difference. And um, but, you know, man, I don't know. You know, you hear a lot of coaches, kids when they're older talk about how they shared their dad. And, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't want that either. You know, I don't, I haven't figured that out yet, you know? Um, and so, uh, but I, I think that's where having them around, them seeing it and then our athletes seeing my kids, I think it's the best next step, you know? Sounds like you found a pretty good balance with it all over time. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm uh, balanced with my imbalance, you know? Uh, I have two things in my life I love, man. I, my family and I love coaching. And honestly, dude, I don't play golf. I watch a little bit of football. I don't really do much else. And I am good with that. Like, I love it. That's like the two things that I love, you know? And, and so, uh, I think we, yeah. And that they said balance with my imbalance by how I, what I, how I call it. I like that. I'm jumping all over the place here, but tell me about the move to Carolina. You were at Stanford for seven years, one of the top programs in the country year in and year out. It's a job that, any college coach would probably herald what spurred the move. Why would you leave an opportunity 
like that to come across country. I know you're from the East Coast, but to take over a program that quite honestly needed quite a bit of work. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of factors to it, you know, um, and, and uh, I loved being at Stanford I, 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 because of the people that we had. And, and Stanford will forever be part of my DNA. That experience was unbelievable. I mean, I, the people that we were with. But, but to be totally honest with you, man, um, I saw some things there that, that, that I also knew uh, weren't right for me long term. Um, you know, I, I said, and I don't mean this to sound bad, you know, I said, I loved my experience there because I loved those people that I worked with. Uh, but man, I, I saw some things from, um, a, a health and well being perspective that really worried me, particularly with my own kids growing up and, uh, that I had never seen before. You know, I'd worked in the Ivy league, I'd worked at Georgetown, but I saw some things I'd never seen before from, a a health and well-being perspective and what our athletes were really carrying on their shoulders every day. And I would come home and tell Colleen and, and sometimes she would joke like, man, you can work here, but our kids ain't going here, you know? And I don't mean that to sense that I, I absolutely love their experience, you know, an opportunity of a lifetime because of the people I got to work with. Um, but my kids were getting older and it was, okay, what environment do we want to raise them in? And, and that Silicon Valley thing, I, I don't think it was for us long-term. I don't think it was where I wanted our kids. And we lived on a campus at Stanford and, you know, the intersection of Stanford and Silicon Valley and the pressure and the stress and the anxiety and the things you felt, man, it was heavy. And uh, I, I just, I, 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 so a part of it was, where are we going to raise our kids? You know, what environment do we want them in that's balanced? And, but I also knew, man, like I, I only know how to coach kids that are highly driven academically. Like I've never been anywhere. I don't even know the eligibility rules. Like I've never lived on that side of the formula, you know? And so I needed a place where like, how do we meet in the middle? You know, how do we go back to the things we loved about Georgetown? Um, highly driven academically. Also a place where we can go build something from the beginning. You know, man, we were at Stanford. I'll never forget in, in, in uh, you know, my 2016, we were, we'll go back to the, you know, 2012 and 2013 NCAA cross country did not go well. We were uh, 19th and 17th. And then in, in 2013, we got second to Colorado on the men's side and we gave them all they could handle. Like we were 98 points. We're the only team ever to be under hundred points and not win the national championship. And man, it felt good. We were like, we're going to do this. Well, fast forward five years later, we got second again to NAU. And we're in the airport and I'm with my staff and we're all like, God, why does this suck right now? We don't even feel good right now. This is like, it, you know, in my, my AD who's there, who I absolutely loved, it's like, what happened, man? And I was like, what happened? We freaking ran great. And NAU is great. And, and they're like, no, oh, sorry, man. You know, it's like, no, dude, we just got second. This is really good. And, and so, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to start something where we could build it from scratch. And, 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 and obviously, man, there is history in Carolina. It's certainly, you know, a slew of Olympians in the 90s and great sprinters and jumpers and throwers. But, you know, we could go build something and not be part of the establishment and not feel that when we get to nationals the first time in a year, and then we go get in the top 10 or the top five. And, you know, that, that was, uh, uh some of the big times. So yeah, I, it wasn't no one thing. I was really excited for that next challenge. And honestly, always growing, you know, this is different. Like this is different. Like I think we started to figure that Stanford thing out. Um, but like, this is a new challenge and I like to continue to be challenged and figure out a new way to do it. And, uh, so it's, yeah, it's the intersection of my personal professional and, it was hard. It was really, really hard to leave because I said, we, I think we were finally getting it going too. Like we were finally 
we had it going, but I think we were about to take the next big step too. Like we were about to take the next big step. I could sense it in the air in the spring of 2019. We all did. And that made it really hard to leave. And, um, but also, you know, this was the right opportunity for us for sure. What was it like for you when you took the job at Carolina and were leaving Stanford to have to tell your kids, many of whom you recruited and worked with for a few years at that point that you were leaving? Oh God, man. Is that, you know, it's brutal for me. You know, I, I think one of the things you learn as a coach is, is they move on faster than you do, you know? And, um, but it was hard, man. It, you know, I, that group of people we had, you know, the, the year before, uh, I, I had, uh, got, I'd, I'd gotten offered another job the year before and then Colleen and I considered it loosely. And then I was like, no way. Grant Fisher has another year. Stephen Fahey has another year. Like I, I just, I'm, I can't, you know, and, uh, it, 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 and not that the next year was any easier. The point is it never gets easier. If you do a good job as a coach in recruiting and developing relationships, it should never be easy. It was hard, man. I mean, I was sick. Like literally sick to my stomach days. You know, there'd be days months later, October, I'd be driving into work sick, you know, like, oh my God, somebody else is coaching Alex Osberg right now. Like, oh my God, somebody else is coaching, you know, Christine Aragon right now. And it's like that, like, I mean, I wish I could tell you I'm over it. I'm still not, you know, um, but I'm sure they are, you know, um, because they're highly driven athletes who, you know, part of what makes them great is knowing like, okay, we've got to pivot and move on pretty quickly. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, man, it, it, it was, it was, cause I said, cause you know, it was seven years. So like, it was ours at that point. Like it, we, we felt it like these were people that came while we had already been there only knew us. Like it was, and, uh, so yeah, I, I could go on and on, but it was, it was pretty tough at the time. How do you stay sharp as a coach now? <sighs> Uh, you know, it probably goes to what I said earlier about that idea of like, you know, that, that, um, little bit of paranoia and insecurity of, of thinking you always got to get better. You know, I never want to be in this place where you think you have it figured out. I mean, if you're constantly in a growth and learning mindset, it, 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 it actually kind of takes the pressure off to you. Like, man, I'm always learning and growing for the future. Mm-hmm. Like this is a, an ongoing process here. There's no destination. And, right. Right. And, 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 and so I think for me, it's like, that's part of it, you know? And then, um, so I, I love that part, but now I also think, you know, what I try to do is not just look in all the same places, you know, like talking to, you know, there's a handful of coaches I talk to. I talk to coach Henry almost every day. Mike Smith and I probably talk every day for the last 20 years. Um, and, but I try to look outside of that, you know, like where, cause the part that I'm fascinated with is the leadership part, you know, is, is the human part of it, you know, like where are these people at? So, you know, I'm constantly looking at places outside of our sport and outside of coaching. And, and it's much more people that are successful leading people, you know, and connecting with people and, and, and also understanding this generation, you know, like I, um, kind of this unique set of people I talk to, like two of my brothers, I have three brothers, you know, one of my brothers, uh, who ran at Yale, he's a high school counselor, right? So he, I talk to him a lot about what he sees in these 17, 16 year olds. And it's, it's usually scary. Um, but I'm learning from that. Side. And then my other brother, is a is a, a elementary school principal, and so and we don't want to talk about the elementary school kids, but we talk about his his faculty, his staff, you know. And he's got teachers that are twenty five, he's got teachers that are fifty five, and he's thirty. And how do you manage and lead them and and be a great leader? And then, you know, two of my really close friends I grew up with have have been really successful 
in leadership businesses in the business world. And one's a CEO of a small software company and the other one's, you know, uh, really cr- risen high and former super company and leads a coupon. So we talk more about those things all the time, like leadership and connecting and, you know, we're getting older, but we're all leading people in their twenties. How do you understand that? So that's the stuff that, uh, you know, gets me excited. So that's where I'm constantly trying to learn and grow and get better. And, and one of the things that's been really cool at Carolina is, um, there's some other great coaches on campus here that have been here a really long time. And man, they're an open book, like Anson Dorrance, our women's soccer coach, 22 national championships, building next door, go sit with him. Like Stanford, we didn't really have that. You know, everybody was just scraping to win the national championship and kind of operating in their silos. And so I try to always find those places just outside of what we do. It's interesting to hear you say that because there's no mention of X's and O's and training or how you're structuring your weeks or what your key workouts are. In your experience, is that where a lot of coaches, regardless of whether they're at the collegiate level, professionally, high school, coaching adult athletes are missing the mark? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I think so. And, I, and by no means am I perfect there. And, and I, I really do enjoy the X's and O's part. And, but if you think that that's what it's all about, you, you're really sending the wrong message to your athletes too, because it, let's just say somebody, you know, a race doesn't go well and we're in my office, we're on the bus and, and I allow the athlete to immediately go to that place about training, then they're not really taking ownership either, you know? And, and, and that's my kind of thing. I was like, look, I'm going to own that part. If there's things we can do better in training, we're going to talk about that. But also like, if you, if you just talk about those things, you're not looking in the mirror, like what can I learn to do better the way I'm thinking, the way I'm talking to myself. And so I just think, yeah, I think coaching is you kind of get to know the people you have, you know, like we talked about earlier with all this, you know, expectation and pressure they feel, you know, from social media or, 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 you know, certainly a lot of people I've had over the years, like, man, the, the pressure they feel coming in because of the success they've had before. If you're not thinking about that and understanding that, like, the the, the workouts really don't matter, man. Like, you're, you're going to fall uh, disappointingly short in, in what you could do. And so to me, and honestly, it's not the part that excites me as much, too. Like, figuring, you know, understanding people where they are, that's the part I get excited about. You work with a wide range of athletes from 800 meters all the way up to 10K cross country or 10K on the track from a training standpoint, how has your philosophy or approach evolved in the 15 years that you've been doing this? Uh, it was constantly evolving, you know, and, 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 but even within that event range, it's still about figuring out the person, you know, and understanding uh, both training and, and who they are, um, what they need to get better. And, and also then coaching to your situation, you know, like they're the, when I was at Georgetown and we were training in Washington, D.C., and we had no indoor facility and we was, you know, we could talk about what workouts they were doing at Colorado, but it didn't apply to our situation, not our people, not our personnel, and also not our environment. And so, um, you know, it's really more just evolved with the people I've had. And, um, and probably the biggest thing is like, man, if, if consistency. I don't care if you're trying to run 800 or 10K, like, it takes time and steady building over time um, and that this does not happen overnight. And, and just talking about that from the very first day. Take me back to your collegiate days at Georgetown. You've mentioned Pat Henner numerous times throughout this conversation. When you got there, what was that experience like for you? And what was the impression that he made on you from the very beginning? 
So when, when I went to Georgetown, um, I was actually recruited by Gags. Um, and, and, and to be honest with you, he, he's really the reason I went to Georgetown. So I, you know, I graduated high school in 1998 and Georgetown in the 90s was, was especially on the East Coast, I mean, was rocking, you know. And when I remember when I my visit there and, and Gags was coaching the Georgetown team as well as the Reebok Enclave, uh, which was a pro group at the time. And being out of practice when I was getting ready to leave and like Steve Holman's out there, Rich Kanawha world-class guys working out with the college guys. I was like, man, this is rock and roll. I mean, this is what I want. I want to be around this. And, um, and then, so my freshman year gags was, gags was my coach. My freshman year was still there. And, and to okay. be honest with you, I was, um, I was, you know, uh, my freshman year, I was, I was, was a challenge just to say the least. Um, and so Pat wasn't there, you know, and, 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 and gags was, was, um, you know, I went there, with this idea, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, I really grew up with, with, without my dad around a lot. And I want, you know, I only realize now looking back, like that's what I wanted in a coach, you know, so I was going to have that connection with, and I had that in many ways in my high school coach and, um, and, and, you know, gag certainly was, was great, but he had a lot going on. And, and truthfully, I needed a lot at that point as I was trying to figure this out. And, um, at the end of my freshman year, I, I really did think I would transfer, you know, I'd been hurt uh, a lot in my freshman year, uh, obviously, was, you know, wasn't really running well to the extent I was even running. And, um, but man, that was all on me. Like that wasn't on gags. It wasn't on Georgetown. It was me. Like, I got to take ownership of this. Like, this is not going to happen by just showing up every day. You know, like I could get away with that in high school and, you know, I'm going to have to own this and this is nobody but me. And then, you know, that summer when gags announced he's retiring, um, you know, Ron Helmer, who'd been the women's distance coach from school became the director of the entire program and hired Pat Henner to come from James Madison to come be the men's distance coach. And, uh, man, I, I, I him and I, it's funny cause we couldn't be from more different backgrounds. You know, he's a Southern guy and accent. I'm from Long Island. And, but I think we just connected very quickly cause man, he made me believe in myself again. And, and he, he tell me, man, I believe you can do these things. Not today. It's going to take time, but you know, you can do it and we can change this team and we can build this team and come with me on this. And I was in man, I was in. And, but the reason I was in was he cared, you know, like I'll never forget. Like I said, I was hurt a lot. Pat is a guy, he'd go to the doctor with you. He, you know, you, oh, you got to see the chiropractor. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up. I'll drive you. I'll sit there and wait while you get worked on. Well, I, I, I want it. That stuff mattered so much to me, you know, not the workouts, any of that stuff. Like I didn't know any of that stuff. It was just like he invested in us so much. And so, um, and I think that's why we still have this, you know, connection we have to this day. I call him for advice on everything still. And he essentially kept you at Georgetown. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I, I you know, I, I, uh, I probably, you know, I considered transferring after my freshman year. Um, and I, like I said, that would have been me looking for an external solution to an internal problem you know, an internal challenge that I had to own. It wasn't Georgetown or, you know, it was me. And then so coinciding with, with, with Pat was just like exactly what I needed at that time. I've got to get Pat on the podcast because now both you and Mike Smith has spoken very, very highly of him and the influence that he's had on both of you. So next move for me is to go right to the source. Oh, you should, man, he'll, I bet he'll be reluctant. Um, but you got to get him on there. Cause his said, he, you know, we talk almost every day, you know, and then, you know, and then having the opportunity to go back and work with them later on when I went back to Georgetown to coach and he gave me that opportunity, which truthfully, uh, he took a risk on me big time 
and did that was, I mean, again, showed that, you know, he believed in me probably even more than I knew, like I believed in myself at that point. Now he's, I mean, absolute best and said, he's my son's godfather. And, um, just the way he connects with his guys is, is, I mean, all the workouts and that stuff's important and he's brilliant there too, but it's that connection piece is what he's great at. What did you learn from him as an assistant coach that maybe you didn't appreciate as much as an athlete? Well, we had this really interesting um, balance because, you know, in 2007, when um, I was at Columbia and, and Ron Helmer, uh, who also had a huge impact on me, he was never really my coach. He was Colleen's coach, but he's certainly done a lot for us over the years. And I've learned a lot from he left to go become the director at Indiana. And I don't forget, we were going to nationals. And, uh, you know, Pat's like, man, I'm, I'm gonna, I think I can get the job. I want to be the director. Will you come back? Will you come with me? And I was like, man, I'm in. Let's do it. And we, we spent all his time at Nationals working on his plan and for his interview and his proposal to the athletic director at Georgetown at the time. And, um, and, and we never talked about what I was going to do. You know, I was like, coach, I'm with you. Like, whenever you want, I want to come back. Like, I'm with you. Whatever you need me to do, let's do it. And then he got the job. And we were at USA's. And he's like, okay, I'm in. Are you in? You coach the women. I'll coach the men. And I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, I hadn't. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, but I, we hadn't talked about that part. And so he did that thing that I was never good at when I became a head coach. Is man, he let me run with it. Like he's like, all right, you got the women, I got the men, and let's go to work. And I, I would go in and talk to him every day. And but he let me learn by doing. And uh, that, that I'll be forever grateful for because I was a 26 year old kid, um, and he gave it to me. And let me do it and, and was always there when I needed him and over my shoulder when I needed him and, and could always, you know, he always protected me and insulated me. And, and um, I don't know if that's the right word, but he was just always there. But he really let me run with it. And then watching him day to day, I mean, again, just work ethic, man, just work ethic. Like I always knew how great he was at connecting, but also like he works like he was in there early. He left late the way he recruited his his system of recruiting is what my system's based on. It's what my, I'm sure Mike would say the same about connection and building relationships, you know? Um, and even just our, you know, our, our foundation, our training, everything is, is everything we learn from Pat. What advice would you give to the young coach who is in a similar position to you right out of college, who's emailing and calling all these coaches from around the country and just not getting any kind of response and wants to break in to this field? Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I get asked that question often by young coaches that like reaching out and, um, find somebody that you can learn from, you know, find somebody that's willing and excited to, to help grow you. Um, I was so lucky. I mean, between Willie Wood and Pat Henner, I mean, people that invested in me and I mean, and, and don't worry about, your career trajectory like wherever place you get to go invest in that right there you know don't worry about where you want to go next don't worry about where you were before like don't worry about who gets the credit just invest in that man it feels so much better you know you see so many young coaches oh well if i was in charge i'd do this no don't worry about that do what your role is like maximize your role make an impact where you can um i learned you know i learned that really quickly at columbia and then um and I think that's why I had a great experience there. And so, you know, and, and just keep finding somebody to let you in the door and, and just be relentless all the time. The NCAA coaching landscape is largely dominated by men. 
What more can be done to bring more women into the fold as coaches and get them to be the head of programs and generally just create more opportunity? Yeah, I, I think it's a place we have to grow. You know, I, I think it is, 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 I mean, I've been really fortunate. I've had two great women on my staffs with, uh, you know, Elizabeth DeBole at Stanford and Jess Ryden with, at, at both Stanford and now at Carolina and uh, two of the best people I've, I've ever worked with from a professionalism perspective and just getting, you know, and making me better. Uh, and, and I wish Liz was, was, I hope she gets back into coaching as her kids get older. And, um, but what, what I think what we have to do in, in, um, having had these conversations a lot with the women on my staff, as well as with Colleen is like, you know, we can't change what the job is though, too. You know, like we, we, ha- we I think we talk about balance all the time. It's like, we, we got to get, this thing is really hard and, and find ways to, I don't know the right way to put this into words, but like, you know, to, to make it, it like an environment where, 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 where women like Doji Taylor, I listened to her on your podcast and it was awesome when she said like, no, I make choices. Like I make choices and they're, sometimes they're really hard, but I make choices. And like, let's not shy away from talking about that, you know, and, and find people that, you know, let's support them and develop them. And one of the other things I think happens, Mario, it's like um, one of two things happen to young women in coaching. They either get put in these assistant roles where they don't really get to do anything, right? Where they come in and it's like, okay, well, we need a woman on staff and hey, you know, you hang out with the women before the race and talk and, and, and I'll write the workouts and really coach them. And it's like, that's bullshit. Excuse my language. That's because you're not preparing them for the next step, right? And so the next, if they take the next step, then they're not really prepared and then their chance of failing goes up, in which case their chance of leaving coaching goes up. You know, it's like we've got to actually, you know, create positions where we're teaching and learning just like, you know, if you come in as when I was a young guy, like I didn't get to do things right off the bat, but like I steadily got to do more over time. And um, so, I, yeah, I, I think that would be like we've got to actually develop them up so that we don't end up in that situation where then they shift into jobs they're not ready for. And then it's, they're set up to fail too. So, I mean, I, I wish I had a good hard answer to that. It's something I want to continue to do better at because I've, man, I've been around some absolute kick-ass women in this that I think like make, you know, oh gosh, can, can make us all better. Um, but with something we got to do better for sure. I, it's something that's really important to me, but again, like, you know, people that, that, that want to do this and are excited that it's going to be a challenge. Well, thank you. I appreciate that perspective. A few more things before we wrap up here. Have you ever had any interest in coaching professionals? Uh, you know, I, 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 I do in that I, um, I want to find out how to always be getting better and find out where uh, the, the highest levels lie, you know? And so I love the college age that we're working with. I, I think this is such a crucial transition in life. And I love coaching teams. I love coaching teams, building team dynamic. And in the pro side, you lose that part, you know, but, but I will say in the last couple of years, I also think it would keep me really sharp, you know, like, and I'm coaching Stephen Fahey right now. He's here in Chapel Hill training and he keeps me sharp because like, okay, man, we're still thinking about how does he get better for the next five years? And I, and I, I you know, so I, yeah, I don't know when and where that would look like for me, but I will say it does really intrigue me because I want to find out how to keep getting better, you know, and that would make me, me better. It's an intellectual challenge. I love being challenged, you know, like how do we figure out that next piece? And, um, 
So yeah, I don't know how that would look for me, but I, I do think that that does have a level of appeal. I don't know if I'd ever want to fully leave the college system to do it, but uh, it does intrigue me. Again, being at that, where those inches matter, where everything matters, man, that's pretty exciting having that challenge. You're 40 years old. You've been coaching for 15 or 16 years now. Is this a lifelong pursuit for you or do you see it ending at some point a decade or two down the road? Uh, no, this is what I love to do, man. And if the, if the pandemic experience has taught me anything, it reinforced that completely. Because, you know, I, I'll be honest, I've had moments of panic in the last seven or eight months thinking college athletics might straight up dissolve. And, and I think if you didn't think that at points, then you weren't watching. And I'm not sure that we are totally out of the woods yet. And I don't mean like, oh, Minnesota cut track. I mean like this thing could crumble. And I don't think it's going to happen. But I, you know, I, I had moments thinking, man, what am I going to do if that happens? And, and then I realized like, man, I don't want to do anything else. Like I don't want to do anything else. I love doing this. And I think I have I can get so much better still. Like I have so much more I can do to get better. And so, no, I, I, this is what I love to do and, and I want to continue to evolve in it. And, you know, it's even to your question about the pros, like, do I want to continue to find new avenues to make me better and challenge me? Yeah, I, I'm excited about that. But this, I got a whole new challenge on my plate and this is different than Stanford. And it's great for me because again, it's sharpening me and making me better. And, um, and so now I, 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 this is, this is my life for sure. Let's dig into the whole getting better part of things. Where can you grow the most as a coach? Uh, I, I think it's you know continuing to get better um, in understanding you know people where where they are you know and and again I think uh, that's coaching you know at any point in time but especially eighteen to twenty two year olds like. I said, this is so different than what we experienced. And so trying to read that, understand it, understand how to meet them where they are, understand how they communicate versus how maybe you want them to communicate is like, how do we get there? Uh, the other part is like, I, for me, I'm equally intrigued by how do I become a better CEO head coach? And I, I hate to use that term, but um, it, it, what I mean is leading my staff, you know, and, and not just on, on the ground. Coach, how do I get better at leading my staff? And I've got a lot of room for growth there. I think I'm getting better and I've gotten a lot better, but I want to continue to get better at building up great, you know, great people on my staff. I want to have them leave and go be head coaches, which I've had a few do. And that, that, that means as much to me as the athletes moving on. Um, so I think that's kind of a part that really excites me too, is like developing coaches as I'm in this more, you know, I look at what, uh, what John Oliver has done at Purdue, man. And that's like, I, that gives me such pride and feelings of just knowing how hard John has worked and seeing him kick ass is, you know, um, so I want to keep doing that too. So then there's, there's always a lot of places you can get better. And then even, even the X's and O's part, I want to get better there too. You know, we, we said that's not everything, but you can always learn how to get better and just don't do the same stuff over and over. Don't get in a rut. While we're there, let's dig into that a little bit more from an experimentation standpoint, how important is that as a coach to get out of the rigidity of the schedule or what you've been doing year in and year out and just having the courage, frankly, to try something different from time to time to see how your athletes respond to it? Well, and I think courage is the right word, right? It is is you, you have to be a, a, not afraid that you might make some mistakes, but you might also figure out how to do things a lot differently and, and a lot better. And um, it's another place I want to keep getting better, you know? And, and I think it's a balance because um, 
you have to believe in what you do. You know, your the overarching principles of, of our system, you know, they, they've evolved, but they haven't changed, you know, um, they've evolved. So you got to believe in it, but then also look at how do you grow from it. So, you know, my point is, I don't think you can be changing it all the time and constantly looking for the next, you know, new ideas. Like, okay, how do you take your ideas and then you build on it and, cha- you know, push the boundaries of new things all the time. And um, I love that part too, man. I, I, I really do. That part is fun to me too. You know, sitting around, let's say Mike Smith and I talk about this stuff all the time too. It's like, what are you doing up there? How do we, what, what, what do we do at sea level? It's different. And um, so, yeah, that, that's something I think I've gotten a lot better about. And in, um, you know, what I also learned at Stanford with some of the, you know, really, really high level people I had, stay simple, man, stay simple too. You know, like trust them, you know, trust them that they know how to compete. They know how to, and, and let's get them to the line, just steady, consistent, and healthy. And, and man, I, you know, I think that's a big part of it too. I love that. Last question. We'll end this one on an optimistic note. We are heading into 2021 here in a few weeks. What's exciting you most as the calendar is about to turn? Uh, you know, I, I think they're still looking at, a, we're looking at a lot of uncertainty here, you know, still. And, and I think it's, it's being certain about what we're going to do despite the uncertainty of, of, of maybe when and where we're going to get the chance to compete. It doesn't change what we're going to do. And so what I'm excited about is, is just growing this thing that we're doing here at Carolina. Uh, you know, Dylan Sorensen on my staff said to me one day last spring, um, you know, it was later on. He said to me, he's like, man, he's like, I get it now. Like, I think he was upset when we left Stanford. He's like, man, I want to stay. Like, he's like, I'm coming with you, but I like it here, you know? And, uh, and he's like, man, I get it now. He's like, I see how invigorated you are, how fired up you are about the guys we got coming in, the guys we're recruiting. He's like, I get it now. This is what you needed, you know? And, um, so I'm just excited to, to watch this thing grow, man. And, and, you know, build up the people around me here. And uh, so I know I'm talking in broad terms there, but um, keep building this thing and, and, and get back to, um, you know, competing again and and what that's going to look like indoor, outdoor track. We don't know, but we know we can get whatever chance we get, we're going to maximize it. So yeah, I'm excited to just, again, keep getting better tomorrow, man. Amen to all that, my man. Well, I've appreciated the past almost two hours that we've had here together. I've certainly taken a lot away from it. I know people listening to this conversation will take a lot away from it. Chris Miltenberg, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Oh, Mario, thanks for having me, man. This was great. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this week's episode. Tracksmith is an independent running brand built on a deep love for the sport. They craft products, tell stories, and create experiences that aim to celebrate, support, and add to running's distinct culture. This holiday season, Tracksmith is acknowledging that running is a gift and that this year, the miles meant more. They want to say thank you running for being the simple act that has helped keep us sane in a turbulent year and they're offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more through the end of the month. To learn more, check out tracksmith.com and use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. 
I've been wearing them for the past few years and they don't bounce, they don't slip, they're polarized to protect your eyes and they come in a nice range of styles and fun colors like a ginger soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Did I mention that they're the most affordable performance shades on the planet with most pairs coming in at 25 to 35 bucks a piece. If you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of shades, head over to gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout for free shipping on your first order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O and you'll get free shipping on your first pair of shades. Look good, run gooder. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to listen and subscribe. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at themorningshakeout.com slash support. I put out a separate weekly podcast on there called The Weekly Rundown, which I co-host with my friend and colleague Billy Yang, and I offer other exclusive perks and sneak peeks from time to time. Last two things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford. He's my audio ninja for this show and makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the social media assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Finally, if you're digging the podcast, I think you will love the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. Every Tuesday morning, I give my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a short collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to, and you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 